In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Our guest today, Kimberly Inskeep, describes entrepreneurs as being hungrier, having an independent spirit, and a driving desire to create their own destiny. She's one to know because Kimberly started her first business when she was eight years old. Having these entrepreneurial instincts doesn't guarantee success. Kimberly talks about how everything costs something, and being successful in her career involved continually evaluating trade-offs with her family and herself. Hi, this is Sandy. You should know that Kimberly Inskeep is the CEO of Cabby, the largest women's apparel company which sells solely through independent stylists. Believing there could be a better way for women to both shop and work, Kimberly was instrumental in the testing, development, and initial launch of the innovative Cabby fashion experience in 2002. We invite you to stick around after the interview for our takeaways. Now, on to our conversation with Kimberly Inskeep. Welcome, Kimberly Inskeep. It is so great to have you here on Money Tales. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it being asked and look forward to this discussion. Kimberly, would you provide an overview of your life and a couple pivotal moments that get you to this conversation today? Sure. When you asked me about meeting with you on this subject, it certainly took me back to a lifelong memory of kind of what led me to this point in time. I think I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. Always had a little bit of salesmanship in my blood. I was, when I was eight years old, I used to make and sell ribbons. Then my dad made me open a bank account and put every single penny I earned into the bank account. And then I, like when I was around, I don't know, 12, I guess, I I made a business out of offering different women that I would come in and clean out their closets and their cabinets. <laughs> and then I put myself, well, actually through high school, I started a house cleaning service with my sister and then put myself through college doing that. And I think I've just always had that in me, like ways I can call my own shots and earn my own money and, and create my own destiny, you know? I do think that as I think about it, entrepreneurs are probably people that are a little hungrier than the average human and probably want to call their own shots. You know, they have a little bit of an independent spirit and they're willing to say yes to any opportunity that comes their way. And I, I guess that's what led me to where I am today. I'm so glad you said yes to this opportunity. I, it's it's a great introduction. I I see you back at eight 
and 12 with your, your businesses, the ribbons and the, the organizing and cleaning. You mentioned your dad. He encouraged you to start this bank account. Tell me about relationship at home. You know, your mom and your dad, were were they entrepreneurs? Were they, you know, how did this, how did this come to be into who you are being so entrepreneurial? Oh, wow. That's a long story. Actually, no, my dad was not an entrepreneur per se. Actually, that's interesting. Now that you asked that, he kind of was. He was a minister and an advocate for the poor and disenfranchised. And so he just drilled it into us, my siblings and I, that kind of the only truly commendable vocation was something that helps people. And he always had us saving money. He used to talk to us all the time about how money was tight and it was all about being frugal. We bought everything on sale. We had jobs at pretty young age. I remember we didn't buy junk food or snacks, not because I think partly because it wasn't healthy, but mainly because my mom just had to make every nickel go further. We never went to restaurants, never, ever, ever, except once a year, we would, we had this family tradition of putting all of our extra change in this jar. And then about December 1st, my brother and I got to count all the change in the jar. And we would use that to go out to a Christmas dinner. And that was our, you know, but discipline was everything in our home, enough sleep, eating healthy, working and giving. And winning, winning was a big deal. Like we played games a lot, but it wasn't so much about winning as the result as it was about the desire. And he was really all about being driven by discipline. And and his attitude towards money was both, it was a training ground for me, but it also was a catalyst for me to not want to live life on a shoestring, I guess is what they say. As a little girl, I remember soft drinks cost like about five cents, five cents. Can you believe it? And my dad would show me a box in his drawer. He would pull out his desk drawer and he'd say, you see that? And it would have tons of nickels, dimes and quarters in it. And he would say, every time I want a soft drink, I put what it would cost in this box. It was just filled. And it was his way to illustrate to me what saving looked like that you give up, you, you take a desire and if you can let it go, you take what that would cost and you put it in your savings, so to speak. And like I said, a moment ago, he, I opened my first bank account when I was eight years old. He made me put every, all my earnings in there. It was both the, the frugality of my upbringing. And then my dad really drilling in two things, like make your life about helping others and save every penny. So that was my upbringing. Kimberly, what did it feel like to have that savings account at such a young age? Were you paying much attention to it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When I was 14, I told my parents I wanted to spend the summer in France when I was 16, because there was a program that I had heard about that you could go to but I had to be 16. And I remember sharing it with my mom and dad and my dad was dead set, dead set against my going, but he came up with this creative way to say no. And he said, sure, if you can pay for it all on your own. And two years later I was in France. (laughs) So, oh yeah, 
I learned to save and I learned that that savings was my opportunity. It created my opportunity or my, my means, my savings was a means to be able to do the things I wanted to do. Tell us about the, the trip to France briefly. Did uh, it make it more sweet that you paid for it yourself? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was 16 years old and I remember I got a, a middle seat on the airplane. So I probably got some kind of deal. But this was back in the day when people smoked on airplanes. The smoking section and the not smoking section, right? Yes. Like smoke yes. knows not to cross over it. Yes. And I was near people smoking and I remember... I was squeezed into the seat, um, people around me, and it was a long trip, and I didn't care at all. I was so happy. It was the most uncomfortable plane ride I've ever had in my life, and I was so happy, and I remember getting off the, the flight and looking at the person that was meeting me, and I just thought I was free. I had this sense of just complete freedom. And that, I don't mean that like as a teenager trying to get away from home. It was like, I've done it. I'm on my own. I did this myself. It's mine to win or lose. And so it was just this very freeing kind of foretaste of the life that I wanted to have as an adult. What about your dad? How did your dad react when you had achieved what he felt was the unachievable? Well, it was, it was funny. My mom and dad took me to the airport. He didn't say too much, but his face said it. He was very proud. But, you know, there's a little pride. <laughs> he was very proud. <laughs> so, Kimberly, you grew up in this household where there wasn't a lot of money. There's a lot of focus on being frugal. Uh, you said that that was a catalyst for some of the drive that you have to achieve a different economic outcome for yourself. What happened after kind of your growing up years? Did you? Tell us about college. Tell us about becoming an adult and how your childhood catalyst experience played into that. Coming from that home, we if we were going to go to college, we all had to put ourselves through school. And we did, every one of us. And and in fact, private school. So it was, but you know, that was in the day again where the cost of education was not what we see today. I so I had a job all through my, my college years, both summer and during school. But interestingly, I got a job between my junior and senior year of college on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And it was a friend of my older sister's who hired me. He had a few seats. He owned a few seats on the floor and he hired me as a runner. So during that year, I worked as a runner, but I would stand in the pit he sold, bought and sold pork bellies, live cattle, gold and silver. And I would sit and I just took it in. I was learning so much as I was watching. I also saw that I was one of the only women there. Very few women at that time. And I started as a runner. And then as I continued to work with him, he began to teach me to trade and eventually started letting me trade. And I remember I was trading when the silver market was just going bonkers and I made a lot of money quickly and I was very young and I had, that was my first taste of money. It was also a dangerous first taste if you think about it because it came so quickly 
it was a few months later, I lost almost everything I made because the silver market crashed. And that was a great learning for me. And I continued to work with him and I began to learn just doing things smartly, slowly, conservatively. But I remember at that point in time, it was pretty pivotal. I decided I want to make money. And then fairly early in my 20s, I had a short first marriage. It kind of came and went quickly. It was pretty sad, but also a pivotal time. I got married right out of college with all the girls were getting married right out of college. So I just jumped in and four years later I was divorced and it was, it was a huge setback. I, in my family, that just didn't happen. And remember I said, winning is, was really important. <laughs> you know, so I felt like a total loser and it was a shock, but that was another moment where I went, oh my gosh, I, I can do this. I, I don't have to be married. And it just re-engaged the spirit of independence and resolve and drive. And I re-engaged kind of my entrepreneurial mindset. And it was like this, I can do this. I can rebuild my life. Because also I ended that marriage in a good bit of debt. So that was a setback and I had to, I had to rebuild. So there's a lot in there. Can we, can we dive a little deeper? Yeah. Yeah. First off, you said after trading in, in learning about the the commodities markets, you, you realized that you wanted money. And I'm curious, Kimberly, did you put dollars amount to, to that desire? Were there goals that you were setting for yourself? How are you thinking about it? Knowing what I know today, I wish I had, but remember, this was a very novel concept for me. I was going to have a life of helping people. I went to school for psychology and education. The idea of doing this pivot and looking for something that I, where I could earn money, I, I was going into uncharted territory. So no, my goal was freedom. And freedom has always been a huge deal for me. I saw what lack of freedom meant to my family. I got that little taste of freedom in my trip to France. I just wanted freedom. And it wasn't, again, the way I defined freedom wasn't like, I want freedom from constraints and rules. That wasn't it at all. It was like, I want freedom to go and do and be what would satisfy my curiosities and my longings to grow and to learn and experience. And let me tell you, if you don't have money, that's a very hard thing to do. You know how they always say money doesn't buy happiness? Well, poverty or lack of money doesn't either. So to me, it is all about your attitude about money. And, you know, I can talk about that later when, if and when we get there, but it's all about freedom. That's what was my goal. In fact, I had a dream. I know I shouldn't say this to you both because you're financial managers, but my goal was to never have to balance my checkbook. I just wanted to be able to know I had enough money in there. Somebody else would balance it for me. I didn't want to have to balance my checkbook. So that's a great goal. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's, it's it's a really great goal. I don't think there's any judgment there. I want to get to the question about attitude about money, but before we go there, you said a great line that's a bit of a figure of speech where you got your first taste of money. What, not literally, but what did that mean to you beyond freedom? What was that first taste of money when you're on the exchange and you, you were making all that money? What did it taste like? The first thing I did is... My parents both love music. They love music. And I went and bought them the most outrageous stereo system that only a guy or a gal who, who's in a rock band would get. It was the most outrageous, overpowered stereo system. But I wanted them to have the best. So that's, that's and it, that was kind of like, I can do this. I can now go do things like this. That was kind of my... That's a great story. It was just so fun. It was fun. And to not have to worry and to be able to do the things that you would want to do, but unable to do. Always constrained, always pressured, always counting, you know, to be free of that and be able to do the things that bring delight to yourself and others. You know, that that was my taste that just kind of egged me on, you know, for more. So you're getting the taste of money. You're having some financial success. You're investing the money that you're making. You you have a setback when the silver market falls out, which is a good learning experience. Tell us about going into the marriage financially and the results of ending the marriage with debt. How did that happen? So married at a very young age. Definitely I was both a, at that time, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the idea of cognitive dissonance, you know, where I knew, but by virtue of how I'd been raised and by the things that I had experienced, by the, the goals that I had, I knew what I wanted. But in my marriage, I also was a pleaser. So I had kind of the, these two different ways of being in the marriage. I was driven, but at the same time, I was a pleaser. And both of those would collide. And so as those collisions became more obvious and apparent, there was just an impasse. But by that time, there was a good bit of debt. I had gotten used to in my life before marriage, making money, spending money. I wasn't doing that at the time in those early years of marriage. Um, I had uh, left my job in Chicago. And so it was, you know, when you have that cognitive dissonance, when you, you know what you want, but you're living differently for it, it has to be resolved in one of two ways. You either change your ways or you change your mind. And so we changed our ways and we parted, but I had to work. I had to get out of debt and I got an accountant. I got it first. I got a job that made money again. Interestingly, part of that cognitive dissonance is I, I knew what I wanted. I had been going towards what I wanted and then this marriage happened. And to be a pleaser, I compromised what I wanted. 
And what happens is you default. So I defaulted back to my education around psychology and education, and I became a, a teacher. So I went back to teaching while I was married. That's why we didn't have a lot of money. And because teachers sadly do not earn the money they should. So when that marriage ended, I just, I kind of stopped and I went, wait, wait, let me get back on track. And I, you know, I got a job that was entrepreneurial. I was independent and I started earning six figures pretty quickly again. I was traveling all over the world for this job and all over the world, went to places I never dreamed as a kid, Japan and Hong Kong and Australia and New Zealand and India and all over the world. And I was earning a good income again, but this time I had an accountant and he helped me month by month erase that debt. What were you doing? I worked for a company. It was a very small consulting firm on the East Coast that specialized in performance management systems. And they, we would go into companies and work with their senior management teams to implement these perform. They were very progressive at the time around new ways to do performance management. And so we would go into these companies that were often international companies and make adjustments according to the culture and then implement these performance management systems. Kimberly, this is amazing to, to pivot from a career in teaching to being an international jet setter working for a consulting company. Yeah. Remember I, I had gotten a taste. I had gotten a taste. That's why that experience at such a young age on the floor of the Chicago mercantile just was an amazing um, moment in my life because it opened my eyes to so much more. And it said, I think that along with an entrepreneurial mindset said, oh my gosh, there's a world out there that you can go after. And I, I think that's one of my frustrations with, and I, I know I sound like, you know, that, that old voice talking about the young people today, <laughs> you know, but I do, I get so frustrated with today. Young people seem to have to have guarantees before they will fully commit or they want to, they, they want to know, you know, what, what's my prospect here? And they want it all defined. They're not willing to just jump in and get paid nothing. I mean, in my, my current work, I spent the first two years earning zero and with no promises. I hope my daughter, I hope both my husband and I trained her to be willing and gutsy enough to do that. But I don't know. I, I know a lot of her acquaintances might not, you know, just from the conversations I have. They're, they leave their jobs because nobody's given them a path. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, you're looking for somebody to give you a path? What I see today, it's so discouraging to me. Well, I'm curious, what's it like to forge your own path, not knowing things, starting a business? And maybe you can fill in some more details here, but but doing something where there is no income for the first couple of years, what's that like? Because for many people, that sounds very scary. So in all fairness, 
I, w- I was married by this time, my now husband, who had a, a solid job. Not a, he was, by the way, starting his own business at the same time I was. <laughs> but he's a, he is a patent attorney. And if you know much about patent work, there are few of them and they are in high demand. So even though he was starting his own firm that was in the building phase, he at least had a consistent income, but we tightened our belts and we knew that this was going to be a time of significant sacrifice. And I remember having to have conversations with my husband and daughter in those early years where I wasn't available. And I had to sit down with both of them and say, you know, everything costs something. Everything from the things that you decide to eat today to the career decisions you make. Everything costs something. And when you make decisions, factoring the cost, some of those decisions, you will say, you know what, this costs too much. It just costs more than I'm willing to pay right now. And you decide not to do something. Others, you say, yes, this costs a lot and I'm willing to pay that price. And so I sat with my family and I said, we have a decision to make. Here here is the prospective outcome of this time. Are we willing to pay the price? Because it's not guaranteed, but are we willing to pay the price? And I had to have that conversation with them a few times to remind them. But I also, in having that conversation, I had to be willing for them to say, no, it's not worth it. And for me to say, okay, because truly this was a marriage I definitely wanted to keep and uh, a daughter I definitely wanted to raise well. So I had to be willing to put them first, you know, if they were to say no, but thank God they didn't. Kimberly, that's a, that's a beautiful story. And thank you so much for sharing that. That really hits on what we're trying to advocate for with Money Tales is having those conversations. They are really hard conversations, but you did it. And I, I'm thinking as you, you, you shared that you're, you're hoping your daughter has the tools, you're modeling the behavior for her to have the, those tools, which is really commendable. Yeah. Thank you. Can you tell us what it was like more specifically to have those conversations? Oh, they usually happened at a breaking point, being super candid. Usually I, it was at a time where I disappointed my husband or my daughter. Um, I didn't show up. I didn't get home early enough. I was distracted. I was just not being who they needed me to be when they needed me to be it. And I had to say at times, I'm sorry, I can't be all things to all people, you know, or I'm doing the best I can. And I will, I will freely admit, I probably at times didn't show up when I should have. And thank God for their grace. But they usually were conversations happening in a crisis moment. So they were highly emotional. So not planned in advance, just sort of. No, but it was really cool to see my daughter sit with her now husband and have those a conversation like that 
in a more planned way because of what she learned watching us go through that because she learned to value that as an intention and understood the value of it and now could plan for it. So able to do it so much better than I did. Kimberly, would you talk to us a little bit about your business? What was the vision? Why did you start Cabby? It sounds like a very disruptive type business. Would you, would you tell us a little bit more about how you came to this idea and how you're executing on it? Sure. So back in about 2001, I met another couple that I'll tell you about in a moment, but just a bit of background. I came of age in an era where, you know, women were told we could be it all, do it all, have it all. I was just born in the late fifties. I was uh, a young adult in the seventies. So I had seen the sixties and I, my older sister had gone through that. So I was just prime ripe for being this woman that could have it all, do it all, be it all. And that was my expectation in my 20s and 30s. And then went into my current marriage in my mid-30s and had my daughter at 36. But I was still traveling the world as a business consultant. I was trying to be this dedicated mother and wife and and this traveling business consultant. And it just it it began to crumble. My husband would pick me up from the airport on a Friday and drop me back off on a Sunday. And I would kiss my sweet baby daughter in her car seat and say goodbye with this big, huge smile on my face, but just heart sick. I was just, it was once again, that cognitive dissonance, wanting and believing one thing, but living another way. And so I quit. I just up and quit. I really longed to be with my daughter. I just adored her and wanted to be with her, but not working wasn't the answer either. You know, I, I had this drive and this desire and I found myself in conversations with a lot of my peers at the time wrestling with the exact same dilemma. And it wasn't until I met this couple, Carol Anderson and her husband, Jan, that I realized that I might be able to offer an answer. To, to women in, of my ilk, so to speak. And Carol um, was an esteemed designer and together with her husband, she had created this established fashion brand that was sold in large department stores and boutiques around the country. But they had really hit kind of an impasse with their business and they were looking for a better way to do their business. They had tried catalogs, they had tried all kinds of things. And so as she and I were talking, we started talking about the needs of women in our age group. So between the age of 38 and 55. So back then it would have been baby boomers. Today it's the Gen Xer. And so how women really longed for a better way to dress, a better way to shop. They longed for connection. They wanted something that was convenient. So, and they wanted confidence. And in fact, those three words became kind of our mantra that giving women a sense of confidence, more connection and greater convenience. So we designed a business model really for women just like us. And we began dreaming of how kind of this better way to shop could also provide a better way to work. And we decided to pull out of stores altogether 
and go direct to consumer. Now, DTC was not what it is today. I mean, we didn't have these phones. <laughs> we didn't have the e-commerce the way it is today. It was non-existent. So DTC back then meant we literally went direct to the consumer face-to-face. And we began building a, a cadre of stylists. And we called them consultants at the time, but today we call them stylists. And all the way up to today, we have almost 3,000 stylists in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. And these are women who serve their peers, other women, through either in-person styling or virtual. Now we have a virtual platform that is outrageous. It's just incredible. Or e-commerce, or we have these really cool apps. So both in person and through technology. But the whole idea is to serve women in such a way that they give them greater confidence in the way they feel and look, a sense of connection through both being personally served, but through, because they usually do it in groups. So they get um, their friends to say, yeah, you should, that's what you should buy this season or not. And then also convenience, you know, so that she can shop when, where, and how she wants. And, and all of that has developed over the 20 years into a brand now that is pretty leading edge. You know, there's not a lot of fashion brands out there that offer what we've offered. However, COVID, what we've experienced over the last 18 years, has been a catalyst. It's been an accelerant for many fashion brands because the only way they could survive is if they created access through various technology platforms. But then they've also suddenly realized that they're going to lose loyalty if they don't find a way to personally connect with their customers. So where we were kind of the, the, on the tip of the curl, if you will, in this idea of both relationship and technology, we're seeing other brands now trying to, to catch the wave as well. That ended in 2012 when they retired and a private equity company bought us. I I continued to have a small share. Then we sold again in 2017 to a second round of private equity and they continued to ask me to stay on. So I continue in the business today. What a story. It's quite a story. I learned a lot. So I think this is fascinating because again, you go in a direction that you've never really been in before. You didn't have any apparel experience. No. You were just identifying a problem and creating a solution to that problem. Yeah. And remember I said, there's two things. What, What I said at the beginning about that entrepreneurial spirit is the willingness to say yes to things that there's where there's no guarantee. You're willing to forego immediate gratification. You're curious. You're willing to try things. You know you can, if it doesn't work, you can jump to something else. But that was there along with, and in all fairness here, the, this couple that I started Cabby with, they had an established brand. So that was definitely a a bit of of luck, if you will, for me, that they would even ask me to help them. It was an opportunity for sure. I don't want to in any way suggest I built something from zero. 
you know, to zero to 10, because there was something already established. It was just a very fortunate mix of opportunity, timing, and my willing to risk. And the discipline that was so instilled in you by your dad, by your mom, I think that played a big part as well, sounds like. Very much. So how did money play into that decision, Kimberly? I don't think I knew what I had in my hands when we started, to be honest. I think that nobody knew how big it could get. If anybody said, oh, yeah, I totally saw where this could go, I'd say, I don't believe you because I know I know where we were at that time. I know what the doubts were. I know what the challenges were. I don't think any of us knew. But as we began growing and started doing the numbers, we realized what this could become. And I very quickly realized that if, and and mind you, by now I was in my 40s, so a little maturity, health, I began to realize that if it didn't become about something more than money, it would begin to own me and it would be fraught with all kinds of things. And so I very quickly, almost from the very beginning, knew that we needed to create a vision even what I've called a creed that became our true north for why we were doing this business. And Carol and I found 10 other women to start it with. And we made sure that these women could or would be like-minded in this idea of having a why. That without a why, without a true north, you start going in all different directions. And I used to draw for them this huge arrow that had, you know, width to it. It would have two sides and then a top was the arrow. And then inside that arrow would be all these little arrows. And I showed them that when all the arrows were going the same way, you get momentum. But when one arrow is off, it knocks another arrow off, which knocks another arrow off and you lose momentum. So from the very beginning, I said to these women, we have to all be going towards the same true north. And then we defined our true north, you know, like a Simon Sinek, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He, he describes it beautifully. He says, everybody knows what they do. A lot of people know how they do what they do. That's your skills and characteristics. Very few people know why. And if they do, they can't articulate it. And so from the very beginning, we spent time defining our why and articulating our why. And it became our true north. And so that through every bump, through every setback, and certainly through every decision, we would go to our why. And that's what got us through the toughest moments. And it's what, when the money was there, made us say, well, okay, we're doing well. So are we going to do good? You know, that saying, you know, you do well so that you can do good. Well, that's was our true why, you know, that was our true north. Our why is that we wanted to do well so that we could do good. And so that's, that was the shift in the money. It's like 
we saw at one, the money's going to be there. Now, how do we have a true north so that it doesn't own us? It becomes a vehicle and no longer the drive. Kimberly, you brought up attitude and you said what's really important is your attitude about money. What do you mean by that? Yeah, a, a good friend of mine many years ago said to me, money is really a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. If money is the fulcrum for every decision in your life, you will lose your heart to it. I mean, I believe you'll lose your life to it. Money is a commodity. It is a means. So if you've got your true north, your money becomes your means, a commodity in moving towards your true north. It has a role to play. It is not an identity. It is a piece of many things that play a role in moving towards your true north, whatever that might be. If your true north is your family, if your true north is relationships, if your true north is to make a difference in your community, if your true north is to is education, if it's helping athletes, whatever it might be, if it's helping the poor and disenfranchised, whatever your true north is, money is a commodity. It's one of many things needed to move towards your true north. But if it becomes the fulcrum for everything and everything starts revolving around it, you'll lose your heart. You'll lose your true north. I, I've seen it happen. Kimberly, I love what you've shared with us on the through point of your life, right? In the early years, it was just like this drive for money. And then you achieve the money and you realize there's more purpose there. You need to, to figure out your purpose and, and align the money with the purpose and, and really truly create some meaning around it. I'm wondering, do you think about money much today? What role is it playing in your life today? Money plays the role I've always dreamed of. And that is, I rarely think about it <laughs> now, now, meaning it works like a well-oiled machine now because of the journey put in over the years. I had to learn about it. I had to have success with it. I had to lose it. I had to go after it again and then put it in its right perspective that aligns with my values. And now I don't have to think about it. And that was what I always dreamed of is freedom. Are you reconciling your bank statements? No. I have somebody else doing that. <laughs> Great. Good for you. You don't have to do it all, as we like to remind people. What's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that maybe we haven't touched on? I think the greatest freedom and peace of mind that you get with money is when you experience the complete kick, delight, joy when you use it to nurture relationships and and make life just a little easier for others it is so much fun and and what's even more fun is when you can do it anonymously 
because there is a little power play that comes into using your money in relationships. And you've got to be really careful of that, really careful that it never becomes for you or for others, something that you kind of depend on to keep that relationship going. And so you got to be super careful. So I, both my husband and I have a, a giving philosophy around that whole thing to make sure that it's, it doesn't become a power play, but back to it. It's if you can experience that, just like I say, it is such a kick to use your money to nurture relationships and make life a little easier for others. It's just the best thing ever. Mm, that's so beautiful. I have the stereo in my head from the gift you gave your parents. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. Take time to celebrate. And the best way to celebrate is to share. Kimberly, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I haven't listened a lot to podcasts about money. And I've just suddenly realized that, oh my goodness, there's some great resources out there to learn about money and to hear other people's stories. So probably it's going to be around whatever I learn the next time I listen to money talks. That's Thank wonderful. You so much. Thank you. Thank you. Kimberly, this has been such a delightful conversation. I feel like your descriptions were so, so great. I feel like I, I got to go along with on the journey of your life. Thank you for sharing this all with us. And congratulations on the success that you've achieved. Oh, thank you. It was very fun to have this time to reflect back. It kind of forces you to stop and, and be grateful. So thank you. Kimberly, you've got a great story and it's wonderful to hear it from you. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Beth. Cammie, reflecting on our conversation with Kimberly Inskeep just now, what were some of your favorite takeaways from the conversation? One of mine, Sandy, it's it's something I think a lot about, we talk about in our home, is she, Kimberly said, discipline is everything, or at least that's what her family talked about. And she said, it's not just about discipline around working hard. It was also about sleep and eating well and your health and working. And so I think about that important, both balance and focus around things that if you just keep those things really well fine-tuned, a lot of the other issues just become really, really small because you've slept well, you've taken care of your body, you're working on something that you're passionate about. So I, I, that just really um, resonated with me. That's spot on, Cam. I think that's really important for each of us to really take care of ourselves and discipline helps. And I think there's discipline involved with money, being disciplined around how we decide we're going to make money. We decide what we're going to do with our money and how we decide how we're going to manage our money. Right, Sandy. What this touches on is with good discipline, it becomes not a big mountain to climb. So I think of these money conversations that just becomes part of your part of your day to day, as does the fundamentals. So whether you know it's the saving, the spending, just becomes part of your day to day. That to me is what discipline is. I like it. I mean, one of my favorite things that Kimberly talked about was 
how she experienced freedom when she saved all that money to go to France when her dad said that that she could only go if she paid for it. I wish I saw her dad's eyes when he when she said she'd made the money. So, so tell cool. me more about that. Tell me how did that strike you? I liked it because I could relate to it. I think there is a lot of freedom in money and also in delayed gratification by saving by working hard or accumulating money in whatever way you do it and saving money for something that you really want that takes some time to achieve. Do you have a France story yourself? I have several stories of France. <laughs> my own my own personal France. I think one that I'll share that was very pivotal in my own life was saving money as a young 20-something year old to move to New York City without a job, without knowing anyone. Ooh, tell us more. It's just something I always wanted to do since I was a young child. I had a love affair with New York City and I wanted to move there. I was at a crossroads in my career. I didn't like what I was doing. I wanted to move into financial planning and I wanted to do it in New York. So I just quit my job in San Francisco at the time. I went back home to my parents' house for the summer and just saved as much money as I could working in temp jobs and, and using some of the savings that I had from that job I hated. And I moved to New York and I found an apartment with friends and I, I made it work. And I felt so free. I, I, I really proved to myself that I could make my own dreams come true. That's a great story. I, I'm not surprised that you found great success, but it's a really good story. Mine isn't as big as going to moving to New York, but I have a, as she was talking, I had a memory of as a kid, I sold lemons. We had a prolific lemon tree and I sold lem lemons, not lemonade, lemons on the corner. There was actually, there was a run on lemons. And so they were really, really expensive. So I sold them on the corner and I sold enough to be able to, to buy my first album. And I bought the Go-Go's and I was so proud. I asked my brother to drive me down to the record store. Back in the day, there were such things as record stores. And I bought my first album. I was so proud of myself. Was this actually vinyl or did you buy a tape? Vinyl. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That, that feeling, right, of being able to do something yourself is priceless. Kimberly mentioned that first taste of money. I think she was in Chicago she was working on the exchange and she'd been successful. And she talked about that being the real first taste of money, although I think she tasted it prior to that. And we asked her, what does it taste like? She said, fun. I, I really appreciated that immediate. There were no apologies with it. It tasted fun. Yeah. And I thought it was great how she circled around to that at the end of our conversation when she talked about how she uses money to share, to make gifts. And sometimes she does that anonymously. And I think that's an important aspect of money that we don't spend enough time as individuals really thinking about how money can be used to delight others and mm -hmm. how we derive delight from it ourselves by, by doing great things for the people we care about. There's a concept that I think we both walked away with that was really important that Kimberly talked about. And that was that everything costs something. 
So you're making choices and money is just more the transaction tool. And she talks about the trade-offs that you have to make and you should be having these conversations well before the crisis happens. And I thought that sounds like maybe she learned that through finding yourself at those crisis moments and having to have that conversation. It sounded like that, Kimmy. And I appreciated Kimberly bringing that up as well, because there are a lot of trade-offs in life, especially money trade-offs. And if we can identify and name those trade-offs and discuss with the folks involved in our life, why we're choosing to make one decision versus another, I think that helps create common understanding and can help everyone get on the same page, especially in in the case of Kimberly's example, when it came to her talking with her husband and her daughter about some of the trade-offs involved with her pursuing her entrepreneurial activities uh, and the implications it had on the family. That's right. And, And she mentioned like, you have to be prepared if they say no, but it's better to hear that no early on and then work around the no, figure out what are the issues? Is it a flat no or what can we do to make it work? And I thought that was an important message for her to share with us. And I appreciated that Kimberly said that her daughter learned from those conversations and Kimberly was observing that by seeing how her daughter and her daughter's husband have conversations and how they have them earlier on in the process when they're talking about trade-offs. So, so that was really great to hear about as well. What a gift. As is all of these conversations we have with our Money Tales guests, Kimberly was, was another wonderful one. And I want to thank her again for being on our podcast. And if anybody wants to reach us and share any insights or tell us how your money conversations are going, please email us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And thanks again, Sandy. This was a lot of fun, Cami. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. It's really great to have a community out there listening to all these money tales and starting to tell us about the tales you're sharing. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Oh, 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 oh